Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of our podcast where we ask the question, Hey. Hey. Remember the odds? I remember them. Tom remembers them. Yay. I remember them. My name's Courtney. And this is Thomas. That was 11 years ago. The odds were 11 years ago. I know. But are they really over yet? No, they've never been you, over. What do you think the new name for the new decade's going to be? I have no idea. Are we just going to go with the 20s again? Maybe. It's it's this weird, like... It, it's so weird, because you don't... Things, like, the new decade doesn't really kick off until, like, Mm-mm. maybe two to three, three years, years in. Three years in. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's how 2010 was. Like, 2010... Although, I think there was a stark... There was a harder cut. From like 2008 and 2009 to 2010, 2011. For some reason, it feels like it's a much harder cut. But so mm-hmm. much shit happened in 2010. In the 2010s, what? You know, like, I have a hard time thinking back like, oh yeah, that happened in the same decade. But then also sometimes like the decade before has like clear signs leading into the next decade. Mm-hmm. Like 59 to 60 you can tell the movement to these sort of, like, psychedelic patterns and bright colors more so than, like, 1953. Yeah, that's fair. Also, I think, yeah, yeah, on that same note, the transition from 1969 to 1970, that was a Totally. Because, like, you know, 69 was supposed to be the summer of love, and, you know, we had two big movements of the 60s, civil rights and the hippie movement. But then, Mm -hmm. as we learned, the hippie movement fails and the 70s are a huge mess of anxiety of cults murder and who's your neighbor kicked off by the manson family and just realizing there's a bunch of disillusioned hippies trying to find jesus right and then somehow those bell bottoms from the 60s get stretched out even further into you know leisure shoots for the 70s yeah, and a lot of those free-spirited hippies of the 60s uh, are people refusing to wear masks at Walmart. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of things that happen in the topic that we're going to cover today that, like you said, really do reflect what is happening now. Yeah. Including uh, a quote-unquote origin of disease and mm-hmm. what it means to align with what the government tells you to do yeah there's um the topic of today's episode is both very relevant for the time it came out but eerily very relevant now Mm -hmm. do we want to just say what we're going to talk about i didn't do my like aughts thing but we had a very nice transition in anyway yeah that's that's fine that's fine you can save it for the next time write it down and save it i'm saving it all right so guys (laughs) last episode we did the host a very yeah. bad movie very um uneventful nothing comes out of it there's nothing to be said about that movie that could be relevant twilight has more relevance to our social climb you know in social understanding more so than that movie did but we had to do it we came in and we're like we're gonna do the good host 2006's mm-hmm. bong Joo ho's classic <laughs> Mr. Kim, formaldehyde, dirty formaldehyde. Pour him into the sink. 
Highest grossing South Korean movies of all time, I, I believe. Yes. It was only made for $11 million as well. Amazing. And it is, we're very happy to be talking about it. It's one of those times after talking about the other host and talking about the Twilight movies, it's refreshing to talk about a movie where I got excited to do more research. And now we're going to talk about Korean cultural norms, American conflict in Korea. Mm-hmm. Bong Joon-ho's Ho, Bong life, pop culture. So many things, Courtney. So many things. I'm going to talk about the Korean you know, Korean cultural trait of the Han. There's so many things. So Family ma- dynamics. Monster. There's a monster. There's a the, monster. At the center of all <laughs> of this. On top of all those other things, there's a monster. <laughs> yes. And, you know, we love more monsters. It was so funny because when we were doing the research behind Stephanie Myers, the host, we yeah. were just like, oh, we should just be watching the host, the Bong Joon-ho movie. Yep. And before I started watching Stephanie Myers, the host, and I read the synopsis for Bong Joon-ho's the host, I was just like, God damn it, we really need to watch this movie. And I'm really glad that we did because by the time this episode comes out, it's not going to be streaming on Amazon Prime anymore. Oh, I, oh, I watched it on um, Hulu, I think. Oh, okay, cool, cool. I watched it on Amazon, and okay. they're getting rid of it on January 24th, so no. I'm glad that I caught it before it leaves. That's awful. How dare they? God damn you, Jeff Bezos. What a gem of a movie. <sighs> yeah, but So, this movie, The Host... Released in 2006, directed and written by Bong Joon-ho. This is his third feature. The plot is a monster emerges from Seoul's Han River and begins attacking people. One victim's loving family does what it can to rescue her from its clutches. I think that's a pretty accurate plot description. But there's so much more that's happening. There's so much more. There's, There's the American conflict in Korea. There's government incompetency. There's... Uh, cultural shortcomings there's overcoming the shortcomings there's family dynamics there's there's beer there's lots of beer yes there is a lot of beer and i'm not just saying that like there's literally it's like integral to one of the characters dynamics but the sound design and this is what bong joon ho is brilliant with like that sound design comes in like do you remember the because, like, early on, we see the beer. We hear the sound. We know what the beer sounds like when it sprinkles open. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then it comes back into play later. I won't talk about it too much. But it's just, it's really brilliant. And the reason I say this, because I also watched yesterday Snowpiercer. Oh, yeah. yeah. I rewatched Snowpiercer, which I love. I love Snowpiercer. And that sound design is also there. Like, just, like, the... Like the whole myth, well, not the myth, the whole idea that something shows up, it's going to come back into play later. But it's so effectively done with sound. It's 
Yeah, I didn't even think about it until like I watched Snowpiercer and then I saw it in the host and I'm like, oh, this is a theme. This is a thing that he's doing. I noticed the sound um, early on when they're grieving over her, when they think that they've lost her. And there are just these comedic bites to what is happening. Like there's a comedic timing, timing to them grieving. And at first I'm like, is this intentional? Am I just missing something? And then as the scene develops even more and the younger brother shows up and they start smacking each other, I'm like, oh, this is intentionally funny. And I think it's in the same way that like when the good place would get too serious, they would have to throw in a joke. At this point in the movie, they think, you know, they have lost the child of their family, which is an incredibly sad thing to witness. So they add these comedic moments and this comedic timing and the sounding for it is just impeccable. And then that sort of comedic timing in the sound continues throughout the rest of the movie. Oh, yeah. And that's neat because it starts off very... I think to get to that point, the movie begins... Yes. ...with a... A United States military army base in South Korea, mm-hmm. where it, and it's in the morgue, and I forgot the character's name, but the American general instructs the Korean um, to dump all the formaldehyde down the sink, mm-hmm. and he hesitates and says that's you know that's pollution and it'll go right into the Han River, and the American general does not care and instructs him to do it anyway. That is significant because in 2000 there was the um sorry the where what's what's the actual name of the i had it i my notes are too long i'm sorry let's see okay so july 15th 2000 u.s dumping of chemical riles koreans the dumping of a toxic chemical at a u.s military base he ignited uh, a storm of protest friday with implications of agreements governing the 37,000 u.s troops in south korea it was uh, uh, the McFarland incident. That's what it was called. I knew it was something with an yep. M, and it was driving me crazy. Mm-hmm. So the okay. Mc, um, McFarland incident is just as Courtney described. A bunch of formaldehyde was dumped um, inappropriately and ended up in the Han River, and they were brought to trial for it. Part of a long string of conflictions in South Korea's history with the United States intervention. And we can go on a long historical thing of where this starts. The end of World War II, Japanese ended occupation in Korea. The United States and the Soviet Union have occupied the north and south of Korea. And then there's civil war that breaks out. And then we get through the Korean conflict and the 38th parallel is formed. America occupying the south and the Soviets and the communists in the north. And... There's this sort of cultural conflict in Korea being that they're in a way being oppressed again. And <laughs> but it's like they've only been an independent country, you know, think about in the last century due to all mm-hmm. these conflicts. Mm-hmm. So. And I think what happens at the beginning of this movie is so important to speak on that because it's just one choice made by one American in the movie, a military pathologist who says, dump that formaldehyde. I'm telling you to do this thing. I'm giving you an order. So it's something so small, but it is clearly stated in a position of power. And then they show you 
um, they cut to a scene of that assistant who dumped the formaldehyde, Dr. Kim, um, jumping off of a bridge because he knows that something bad is going to happen. And it reflects on how the American influence always ends up including the emotional and physical and mental distress of the individuals who are being affected by it. Yeah, and that scene was, that scene itself, the bridge scene was very, it was haunting and it was also powerful because then I did some research on this. The The Mafo Bridge is a very common bridge that's also nicknamed the Death Bridge. Hmm. And this is a common thing and struggle in this identity crisis in Korea that often leads to these immense levels of distress, you know, and anguish. And most of this movie yeah. takes place on that river, the uh, the Hangang Riverside Park specifically. Right. And it like just goes to show you how like the assistant, the one who is forced to do this thing, is carrying the emotional weight and labor of the action. The guy who told him to do it is probably just going home to his family like everything is normal. Mm -hmm. His life is not changed by the powerful decision that he made and is now going to affect so many in this park oh yeah mm -hmm. so then we cut to two fishermen i like this scene this scene is kind of funny. me too it's so like it's funny but it's also very eerie it it's, really sets the tone exactly it's this un it's this brilliant balance of just like goofy comedic but like deeply upsetting because you know what's happening yes. and even the way they describe it is it's so effective you know that there wasn't actually anything in the water like we know with an 11 million dollar budget this was bong joo ho being very effective with just visual exposition mm -hmm. and just the way that they're describing it are like oh, it has like 10 legs like what's wrong with it you right know? and what i love about that is because we already know something bad is going to happen in the movie it's already set for us the movie's called the host we know it's about a monster but in real life that scene is actually how it would play out and yeah. how a lot of events have played out that are actually have had extreme ramifications it starts off with like one person being like hey do you think this is going to be a problem and then somebody joking about it yeah yeah and then we cut to a few years later and we're introduced to our main characters our heroes our hero of the day mm -hmm. the and we're we are getting introduced to the park family mm -hmm. and this is where um I want to make sure I get the actor's name right because he's a he's a regular in all of Bong Joon Ho's movies. He's in Snowpiercer. He's in Parasite. I oh, love this you man. know, I didn't realize it until after you said that, and then I looked at the name and I was like, yes, that is true. I've only seen part of. I've only seen the beginning of Snowpiercer. I know a lot of stuff that happens in the end, um, yeah. but I I haven't seen it. Like, in yeah. its entirety. His name is uh, Song Kang Ho. I hope I'm saying these names correctly. I apologize. <laughs> I think I think it's okay. Only because, like, in the last episode, you kept calling Saoirse Ronan Sasha Ronan. Oh, no. So it's like, no, it's okay. Because, you know, the, the big argument with getting different names wrong of different cultures is like, oh, well, everyone can say, like, Tchaikovsky and stuff like that. So I think the fact that we... Um, genuinely struggle with names just 
across all borders. I struggle with remembering names, pronouncing names, saying names. It's like, it's it's a struggle that goes clearly unprejudiced. Yeah. But yeah, he was in mem- uh, Memories of Murder, The Host, Parasite, Snowpiercer. He's such a strong, brilliant actor. He's and so like, good. I didn't even recognize him in Snowpiercer because he plays such a completely different character. Like his physique and right. physical performance is so different. Right. But here he plays the dad of of just the most precious, you know, little girl, Han Su. Mm-hmm. Who and they're with their, their and they're with their grand. Well, Han Su's grandfather, and Gong Du's father at this shop in the middle of the park. Mm-hmm. And you can tell he's just kind of like a. How would you describe? Him? He's just kind of like a slacker. Um. They. It, they claim throughout the movie that there is something going on there that isn't just that he's a slacker and. They they kind of keep referring to him as these sort of like uh passively aggressively insulting names. They call him like a dink and like an idiot and dimwit. Yeah. But um yeah, so you kind of get the idea that like he's not the crispiest chip in the bag. No, and they say I think they do say something about like the mother just picking up and leaving. Yeah. So it's just him and his daughter, and they're with their with his father at the park. And all seems no, you know, fine and dandy, normalist, <laughs> normal day going on, but then there's just this thing hanging from the bridge. Before we even get to that, um, I just want to like set the scene. Yeah. For how they establish the relationship between the daughter and her dad, like obviously she knows that her dad isn't the brightest person, because he hangs out with her. She comes back from school. They're going to watch her aunt on the. Um, awards she's like an award-winning um archer yes and at the time the father says like oh i've been saving money to buy you a new phone and she's like there's mostly just dimes there and it's not like she's mean about it it's just very matter-of-factly but she's also not hopeful like oh my gosh my dad's gonna get me a new phone like it's very clear that she's aware of, like, who her dad is, and she loves him regardless of it. She doesn't chastise him for having that little amount of money, but she also doesn't praise him to an extent that she's putting him on a pedestal. Exactly. It's a sweet little moment that I really enjoyed to establish their relationship. Oh my god, it was... And she uh... also has a beer. She gets a beer with her dad. Uh, oh yeah, they have a beer. Oh they have a god. beer. Oh, man, I can't even imagine that. So, <laughs> so we... yeah, so while they're watching the um, Archer competition on TV, there is this thing hanging on the bridge, like Tom is saying. Oh, yeah, and people, it's like a spectacle. People are looking at it, it then it kind of does it. I mean, it's early. It's not early. It's like 2006 CGI. Mm-hmm. So it's not the best, but it's still effective, and it's just this is uncomfortable thing to look at. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it definitely works better at a distance, but mm-hmm. they um, it slithers into the water, and then they're just like, let's throw things at it. Well, he starts it. He literally throws just a can of beer in it, and the monster grabs it, and they all get excited. 
My bad, my bad. I was just literally going to say, like, they all just start chucking things at it. Yes, I, I actually really enjoyed that because um, what I do want to say about this movie's portrayal of American influences, it doesn't make it the sort of mustache twirling villain or like the buzz cut kill everybody kind of villain in Avatar. Um, they show these people just throwing trash and litter at this thing in the water and it kind of shows to you that although we know this direct incident is the thing that created this monster you can also see how like clearly these people are just littering in the pond uh littering in the river as well oh yeah no it's and that's what's great about his movies they're they're not objectively black and white there's a lot of discourse and there's there's a lot of discourse and things to be addressed why am i losing my words oh my god that's why i stopped taking notes that's why i stopped taking notes because i realized i get more overwhelmed and overstimulated when i take a lot of notes that's you're right you're right no no i mean i i figured like whatever works for anybody yeah well i mean like well my point is because there's a lot of discourse to his movies and particular like like, even with parasite because the Mm-hmm. When you watch Parasite, it's a it's about a class struggle, which is a common theme that appears in all those movies. But the the upper class people aren't evil. They right. have their flaws exactly. and they're ignorant to the to the struggles of the working class, but they're not evil. And I think that's the same here. Like there's a lot of the American influence in Korea has created a lot of detrimental issues, but it's it's only sort of exacerbated already existing issues in Korea itself. And you see that in this scene in particular. Right. So instead of thinking about the actual ramifications of them throwing all this trash and garbage into the river, they're just like, hey, let's throw things at it. Yeah. What is that weird thing that's in the river right now? Yeah. And that's another thing, too, that I always hate. And I think this is a a lot of countries do this. We do this. Everybody does this. Is that when we find something that is sort of this animalistic anomaly, like a dolphins on the beach, instead of trying to make sure it's okay or that the perimeter is secure, we just want to do things with it or to it, like take pictures or... Look this at morbid it. curiosity because it's like oh we don't see it so now let's oh let's get a picture with it you know yeah exactly oh let's throw cans into the river yeah and there's this brilliant moment because up until now the monster's only been alluded to and it's a very i remember him mentioning spielberg in an interview mm-hmm. when he talks about the host how to be effective with the budget he alludes to the monster you know the monster to create a presence before you actually see it but what's different here in this movie, and I like it a lot, is that as they're throwing things into the river, there's no sign of it like, oh, where'd it go? And that's when um, Gang Du looks and he just sees it and they show it full frontal running at people. And it's like this immediacy, like this immediate threat of holy shit, here it comes. Here comes the monster. Right. I actually enjoy that more than like the scene anticipates you to wait for it to jump out and grab somebody and then start the terror. Yeah. But the fact that they just completely bypassed that scene and then the protagonist like looks over and sees it running towards them is perfect. Oh yeah. And 
What a great way to introduce this thing. And you know what's insane is that that scene went viral. I remember because I, before I even saw the movie, I've seen that scene. Oh, really? Yeah, I think in the early, like, I would say 2014 or so, like, that would show up everywhere. Like, it'd be on Facebook or it'd be on Instagram. Just, like, it, it went viral for a little bit. I guess this movie okay. had a second, like, resurgence in American pop culture. And I just died because I've seen that scene before I saw the movie. Okay. And it's such so then, an effective scene. That's when shit gets wild and you actually feel like it's such a good way to introduce the monster because it is different than the usual, like jumps out and takes somebody and it gives you time to feel the fear with everyone in the park. Oh, yeah. You're like, holy shit, this thing is coming at us now. It's this big, and it's just the, it's, it's not an efficient or effective killing machine. It's just this big monster. It's clumsy, it's stupid, but it's unpredictable. And that's what makes it mm -hmm. scary. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting with this scene that I really like is this scene is very straightforward. There's a threat, there's a sense of immediacy, and people are reacting like very real. Like there's this sense of panic, people are fleeing, people are trying to run and hide. Um, there's this really uncomfortable, scary moment where like a bunch of people run inside like a, like a house trailer. Mm -hmm. And then the monster runs into that house trailer. Right, and then they get stuck, and then there's one American officer who's like, I've got to go help people, and <laughs> meanwhile, um, Gangdu is being told, like, go help them, go help them, and he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to, yeah. He doesn't want to, and then they both end up together, working together to try to stop this thing once it does get out of the trailer. Yeah, and I think what's brilliant about this scene is because the American helps, and Gungdu and him work together and they're effective when they work together, but then they get split apart and then the American gets his arm like removed by the monster. Mm -hmm. and, what's, and I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just saying what's interesting about the scene is that in this moment, nothing matters. It's survival. There's no sense of like cultural identity or, oh, he's the American. It's very much these are people trying to survive this monster attack. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think made the follow up when the korean news media reported on it that made it so fascinating because like you said gung Do was just really hesitant didn't want to but ended up like doing an active part in dissuading the monster and along with the american who the american became the victim of the monster's you know per, per you know pursuit but when the korean media talks about the event they're very sure and very specific to include our hearts go out to the brave American who saved us. Right. So I, I think that's very important here in this movie because it makes it very clear, okay, not all Americans are like this. And the American people at the core of them are also just truly living their lives. And look, here is this American person who is doing the right thing. He's a hero. He's trying to help these people. But then also because he is the victim and he is white, he is put on that pedestal of like, we need to mourn this victim. Whereas for the rest of the movie, the news portrays our our protagonist, Gong Du, as an out, like as a bacteria. They call him Mr. Bacteria. Oh, yeah. And meanwhile, like the white American gets all of the praise as the victim. Um, Gong Du becomes 
um, wanted. Oh yeah, and it's yeah. it's really a brilliant look into the struggle and the and the Han. Have I mentioned the Han yet? Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into the, the Han, Han, and maybe this is part of the Han as you describe it, I also want to add that what happens to the American citizen is also, you know, I think it's it's meant for Bong Joon-ho to say that the American people are also sometimes just as much um, prey to the political figures who control this to begin with. Yeah. Like, they are just much pawns in the game as anybody like else. Like, the only objective bad guy I could say is the American general who tries to bring in the Agent Yellow. He's the yeah. real only objective bad guy I can think of. Everybody else is either... Also the guy who told him to dump oh, the yeah. formaldehyde. That was a total Karen yeah. move. He was like, there's dust everywhere. This formaldehyde is dirty now. Dump it into the river. I want to speak to your manager. Dump it into the river. Dump it into the river. I need a pumpkin spice latte. Oh my god. Okay, so go ahead about the Han. Well, from what I looked into, because the Han was something when I was looking up like the cultural significance of this movie and Banju Ho's work, Han is something I learned about, so I'm no expert, nor do I want to speak on behalf of someone who is Korean, but from my understanding, it is a cultural trait that is a sense of unresolved injustice and conflict, and due to this feeling, there is this strive to excel and be recognized, and it makes its appearance in, like, music, there's this type of music called Pansori music, which is a music mm-hmm. created by the working class, the lower class, as a means to express their oppression from the wealthier class, which is, again, a theme that would play in Parasite. Um, mm-hmm. There's always a sense of, like, either conflict or mourning or grief. And I remember there was a brilliant... I read... I wish I had the site to, you know, give proper citation to, but the quote I had is, there's no greater Han than losing a child. And in this movie, there's that mm. exact conflict where Hansu... You know, Gungdu is trying, you know, he thinks he has his daughter by the hand and he's running. He's trying to keep her away from the monster. And he turns around. He's got the wrong girl. Oh, my God. That scene. That scene. It like it. It, it hits yeah. so much because, I, you know, I have these moments and I don't know if you do, Tom, but I have moments where I'm like, OK, if, if there were a zombie apocalypse, how would I get to my family? Yeah. You know, you do have these moments where you're like, okay, I would need to get to this person. I need to get to that person. So Gangdu is thinking that. He's thinking, I need to go get to my daughter. And so you think he has it. He thinks he accomplished that goal. And then when he realizes it's a different child, I'm like, no. And it's just, just this unfortunate moment where you see the monster takes her. And the slowdown and just the struggle. And there's this... he. Gungdu jumps into the river to try and swim and it's literally like he's getting nowhere. Mm-hmm. It is so tragic and it's, so sad. From what I gather about it is it's sort of like capturing the nuance of negative emotions and not necessarily um, portraying them in an objective way, but portraying them for all their complexities. Yeah. So now there's this conflict. His daughter is taken and essentially the whole movie is this the park family having to 
like there have to come, you know, we see their flaws for who they are, their shortcomings, and they have to kind of create, you know, work together. And, tr- and the mm-hmm. biggest roadblock for them is government incompetency. <laughs> like yeah. that's what kept bothering yeah. me the whole oh movie God. is that the whole <laughs> plot of the movie, and it's brilliant because it's true, is it depends on the government not knowing what the fuck they're doing. And also, like, a detached sense of power. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, they slap a label on these people and say, like, you're in charge. And clearly, they don't know any more than the people do. So after Hyung Seo gets kidnapped by the monster, um, they're brought to, like, a center uh, where all the victims are and all the people who were at the park. And then... Um, somebody walks in in a hazmat suit and he's like, hello, um, we're here to take you guys away. Yeah, it, it's so cartoonish, and but it's like, he walks in. It's so cartoonish, he falls on his face. <laughs> There's a cartoon, but like, what's scary <laughs> about it is that he himself is incredibly incompetent and he's, he's trying yes. to be nice and he just says, did anybody come in contact with the monster? And people are suspicious. Like, rightfully so. Yeah. I think this is also a part of, Korea, like, the Korean culture. They see this authority figure, you, Mr. Dumb Nuts, coming in with a hazmat suit on going, hey, did anyone happen to see the touch the monster? And they're all like, and I don't like, trust this guy. Right, and they're like, you haven't even explained what's happening. And then he's just like, oh, um, the news. Yeah. The news will explain what's happening. And he's just like, oh, the news, the news, the news. Like, he's just hoping it's on so he isn't responsible for explaining anything. Because he has no idea what's going on. And he doesn't want to be held accountable for anything. And it's very clear that, like, his job, it becomes clear to us, like, his job is he's going to take away anybody. And that's what's, this is where I've hit my first real world uh, parallel. And I could tell that story briefly. But, like, so he... Eventually, Gung Du says, "Like, oh, I, I, the, the monster's blood was splattered on my face, and this bumbling idiot who's trying to be friendly all of a sudden just like blows the whistle and goes, everybody get him, get him!' Like this terrifying moment of like, oh my god, Gung Du didn't do anything but try to save the day, and his daughter is gone, and now like these idiots in hazmat suits, these officials." are here to, like, take him away for unexplainable reasons. I would also like to add, I know I, I kind of jumped into the um, the hazmat suit guy because he's just so fucking funny. But, um, like, before they even get to that... The morning. You know, the, yes, the the scene that sort of leads into it um, is so funny. It starts off, like, I remember the, the, the very loud and expressionate passion of like emotion at first hit me very sincerely but then as time goes on it just became a more and more absurd like it's perfectly timed the absurdity levels up just a little bit and i'm just like is this supposed to be funny because it's getting funny right and then the and like the thing it starts off so sad with um namju his sister coming and like bringing the bronze medal to the picture of hong seo because they think at this point that she's dead and you're right just like as the wailing and the moaning climaxes to this hysterical level 
then it becomes clear that it's very silly. And then the things going on around them, like these people are on the floor yeah. fighting and yelling and screaming. They lost their daughter. They're like hitting each and other. Pe- like just people come in and start taking pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People start coming and taking pictures because unfortunately the news and the media love that trauma porn so much and should i wait should i not say that we're talking yeah okay okay lots of media outlets prefer to show photographs and footage of people mourning in these sort of situations and there's just this huge disconnect from like there and i think that's a common theme in this movie there's a huge disconnect from the emotion and the moment and the way it's the discourse of it being viewed as an audience member watching news. Like there's a very clear thing in this movie where there's always news mm-hmm. on and a disconnect from people watching it and almost a complacency. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, there's almost like a detachment mm-hmm. of the nurturing aspect of like people around you are hurting. And it's just hilarious. It's like, why do you take pictures? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then the uncle shows up and he's like hitting him but then like the grandfather is like at least this brought us all together and they clearly like aren't functional together at all (laughs) oh my god and then that's what leads into the hazmat man hazmat suit man so and then that's when i realized i was like oh this is intentionally funny mm -hmm. And I love this. I love that it can go from serious and grieving to slapstick comedy 10 minutes later. And that's when I texted you and said, Bong Joon-ho needs to be protected at all costs. Oh, yeah, he's incredible. What what struck me about that scene, because this movie was made in 2006, and there were, like, SARS Mm -hmm. fears. Like, we were living in a world where the threat of a pandemic was always imminent, but people never really took it seriously. Now we live in a world where the pandemic is a real threat, very serious threat. And at the right. start of the pandemic, I remember this was back in March, so almost almost a year ago. I we were ramping up and the the threat was always on our mind and I will give credit to the fact that like my team and my supervisors were preparing us for like okay, this is we got to take steps, be open and honest, we got to be safe. And I remember I went out for a birthday party. This was really before like anything shut down. This and then it was just like, you know, trying to be safe, but just having a good time, not thinking too much about it. But then that that Tuesday rolls around after the weekend, mm-hmm. and my friend calls me up and she goes, "I feel incredibly sick, and I think I have COVID." And I am like, mm-hmm. and I start to panic. I'm like, "What the fuck? Like, what does that mean? Like, what do I do?" And I remember thinking, like, "All right." She's going to get tested. We're going to find out. Like there was this hope in this in in the institution. And then she's like, I'm waiting six hours and they don't even know if they'll test me. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, they don't have the tests. And I'm like, oh, my right. God. And then she did eventually get one. But like, I remember I called my boss. And I said, my friend might have it. Mm-hmm. And it was just immediate like, OK, I, you know, it's don't come in the work. And we'll figure it out. And I ended up staying, I ended up staying home. And then the following Mm -hmm. week, we started, we booted up the work from home, which I'm really proud and glad that we were able to get it up as quickly as we did. And thank you to everyone who did that. But I remember I got a call from somebody 
who was, you know, they were, they, they started off very friendly, but then it became like a 40 minute phone call conversation about, okay, um, when you were in office, what seat did you sit in? Okay. What, which refrigerator yeah. did you touch? Which elevator did yeah. you use? And I just, it felt, and it's, I understand why they had to run these questions. And I think that's the theme is that nobody wants to be in this situation and nobody's prepared for it. But when you have to maintain this level of professionalism, it creates a disconnect emotionally. Like it, it, it really hit me in this weird place being told you're probably not going to be in office for a few weeks. Mm. And I just thought to myself, oh, shit, this is real now. So Love. it's very interesting that that was your experience with it, because I guess mine happened much earlier than that, because we have such a huge um, Chinese community within the university, um, we knew about it as a threat and not saying that those people are a threat, but that the transmission of a virus was a threat on campus much earlier on than that. We knew that as soon as the semester started, this was last semester, I mean, I'm last year. And I remember one student was, um, she wasn't in the first class. And I remember my professor being like, oh my God, have you, is she feeling okay? Have you heard? And I remember the panic in her voice. And I remember just thinking like, okay, that's a little insulting, but all right. And then I, I realized now that that was just like a fear that is completely natural to the situation that we're in now. But at the time it seemed so isolated yeah. and so exasperated compared to the general vibe of what was happening in America a year ago. Yeah. And, and then um, shortly after students started coming back from China, then the sort of like forced isolation of those students started. And I don't necessarily think that that was a, that was a safety measure. I think that that was fine. But it became very clear to other students who weren't as understanding as yeah. like something to kind of make fun of. And that was an a huge issue that I had with it. I saw classmates um, kind of laughing at the fact that other students couldn't come to class and that they had to stay home. And I remember being incredibly disgusted by it and having one classmate in the class laughing and the rest of us just like looking at them in disgust that they were laughing at the situation. And then um, Columbia was one of the first schools to close. Really? Yeah. And so I was setting up to give students materials to get home and everything was sort of chaotic. I remember seeing my program direct, uh, program advisor. No, I'm sorry. My program manager. And we both were just kind of like, oh my God, can you believe the chaos of all of this? And at the time she was still like, you can come on campus. So when you come back from your trip, like we just can't have students in the studio. And I was like, okay, cool. And it just seemed sort of like, oh, can you believe this like chaotic thing? And then by the time I came back from my trip in Austin, the world had completely changed. Yeah, you were in Austin. Because that's the thing, like, yeah. we knew about it for a long time. Like, it, we were actively reporting on it and gathering information. Right. And there were early safety precautions, like, in place. But there just was like that one week. It was literally like the second right. week of March where all of a sudden everything shut down. It and seemed like there were, like, it seemed like for me, it was in my personal world a little bit 
earlier on than it was for a lot of people. And then all of a sudden in March, it hit massively. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The world um, just... I remember texting my best friend and being like, so Columbia has decided to close for the rest of the semester. And that's when all of a sudden she was like, I don't... I don't think this is going to be good. And I was like, well, what's the big deal? Like, they just do this. This is, you know, this is part of their esteem and reputation that they want to be at the forefront of what should be done. And she was like, yeah, this isn't going to be good. Like, that was the moment where she was like, oh, no, I've got a bad feeling about this. And what's crazy is I remember feeling like it really it, it put me in a minor depression, like oh, the idea like. I'm not going to be in office for a few weeks like this. I don't know what this right. is going to be. This is going to be bad. Lo and behold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. January. You haven't gone back. I haven't yeah. gone back. <laughs> it was a and lot longer. And that's the thing too, that I forget is that I, I got to come back to the studio much sooner than you got to come back to your job. And I forget that for me and my household, the pandemic is a very different experience than it is for other people who are still staying at home, have been home for several months. Some people who have kids, you know, I mean, at our place, because everyone um, is has been like working during the pandemic, it still has had some sort of normalcy and routine to it. But for a lot of people, they've been home for nine months. Yeah. And I mean, I'm very lucky and I'm very proud of like this, our ability to do everything. Well, mo- yeah, pretty much most of it from home and work together and get right. through it. Right. As many people should be. Unfortunately, yeah. I just live with a bunch of people who could not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, so it's this weird parallel of like this, mi- like confusion, not like disconnect, like, and the struggle, like. I'm sure they didn't want, like, I'm sure when that phone call happened, there was no intention to make me feel, you know, concerned or make me feel disconnected or, but then it's like, but how else can you, how else does that conversation happen? And it's just this awkward, like really almost bureaucratic conversation about like, all right, so to cover all of our bases, which Tupperware and which side of the fridge did you touch? It's and the did, worst. did you touch anybody while at work? Did you do anything? It makes you feel like a monster. Yeah. And it's like that scene yeah. in with the hazmat suit was so hit so very real for me now. I'm like, holy shit. And that's why I think I texted you. You were asleep, but I texted him like, this movie's really weird watching it right now. It's very weird. It's very weird because and and part of it is too that I like felt the biggest parallel that I felt throughout this movie, and I feel like Bong Joon-ho makes it a very clear um, influence in the movie, is the American approach to looking at things in Asia as this exotic and also equally terrifying and sometimes unfortunately portrayed as barbaric um, system. And I think that they kind of elicit that in the movie. They start to imply that whoever is near the monster um, can contain a virus. Oh, yeah. They create create this whole fear and paranoia around a potential virus that stems from the monster itself. And you know what's interesting is that it caught on early because when they Mm -hmm. they, when they announce that there's a virus, 
Right. You only see news broadcast footage of like somebody with blisters or something like that, but never right. throughout the movie did we see anyone with those symptoms. No. Or do they focus on the monster? They don't even focus that much of the news on the monster. They focus it on the potentiality of a virus in the same way that, you know, so many people talked about the virus when it initially started and it was just so terrible yeah, and so ignorant. To acknowledge that there was a monster is to acknowledge that the United States had a hand in it. Right. So it was safer for the American government in this movie to focus on like what could be originating from South Korea versus what they caused and what they yeah. created. And what's in, and what's crazy is like to bring it back to your point is mm-hmm. that one of the victims of the fact that they were trying to avoid accountability was the American soldier. He dies. Exactly. He dies. Exactly. And also it becomes very clear to me like oh he did not die because of this monster. No. He died because of some interior decision that was made to like inflict these drastic measures by pinning him as the victim. Yeah. He yeah. became a, a martyr. Exactly. For, the, for like, this virus. Then, that, does, that, that spoiler alert, guys, we're sorry. Right. It doesn't exist. Right, exactly. Then it feels like those drastic steps that are taken in the future part of the movie are rationalized in the same way that when we in American culture see something as a victim, then it feels like these extreme fears and these drastic steps are necessary and rational to protect ourselves yeah and it's um i also i wanted to clear it up up right up front that there is no virus in the movie to also make a very important statement we're not saying at all that you should take this movie as a fact and then use this knowledge to be like maybe there is no covid-19 right there is very really (laughs) covid-19 I was worried about that too. I was worried. I was like, oh, because we're reflecting on the parallels of like American government in this movie and the norms that happen in America today, that does not mean that this one should be taken literally. We're talking about more criticizing um, like these sort of like biases that develop through fear. Yeah. And through misinformation. And that still parallels regardless. Yeah. Yeah, there's no would, virus in the movie. There's a virus in real life. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would say that even... It's not even... I mean, the American government had its issues. But even the like the authorities in Korea, like the... Right. The author, like the 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 police... Like how, like how easy would it have been in our mind to just be like, I got a phone call from my daughter. She's still alive. Can you please go find her? And the authorities laugh it off and consider him crazy. Oh my God. The moment where Namju puts her hand on the police officer's tie and she's like, are you saying that you don't believe us? And then he's like, are you keeping an officer from doing his duty and it's like oh my goodness like you can relate regardless if you are watching this movie as a korean citizen or as an american citizen that scene plays across all cultures there's this just level of incompetency from this bureaucratic setup that there's such a panic about everything else right they're neglecting not only neglecting that this that there's very clearly 
potentially survivors of this monster attack, but they're ignoring the monster itself. Like, that's the beauty. I don't even think we've discussed a lot about the, the themes and stuff. I don't even think we need to be chronological in our storytelling. We set the plot. We yes. know what's what's going to happen. But, like, there's this brilliant moment where, like, you realize by the end of the movie, this monster realistically could have been eradicated day one. I was thinking that at the end of the movie, this whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm like, had they just listened and focused on the immediate danger instead of creating a persona to protect individuals involved in creating it, the whole thing would have been taken care of, which is also parallel to what is happening now. And it's like, it's like spend, you know, it's like, you know, spend a dollar to save a dime. It's like exactly literally if you think about it efficiently, even like it, if you want, if they wanted to cover up this incident, if they wanted to eradicate the incident, if they wanted to stop this panic and potentially hide everything that happened, how much more efficient would it have been if they just killed the monster at the start? <laughs> like, if I know they, they literally never just, even think that like every like that's what it is. Like they did all this shit. They spent so much energy, time and money neglecting the problem to pretend the problem didn't exist that if they had just addressed the problem head on like i wouldn't like if in all honesty i'm not trying to say anything but like if there was a monster invasion and then they killed the monster there was no real deaths and they just lied about the monster i'd be like you know what i'm not happy but at least the monster's dead right exactly there's nobody in the um bureaucratic system and any of the doctors being like I don't believe that this guy is sick. He seems fine. The only one who does is Nam Nam Il, who is the brother, and he is, like, the college graduate. He is a smart kid, but clearly does clearly lacks the execution that his sister Nam Ju handles in her archery. Yeah. You know? He's the only one who's like, we don't have a virus. We're not sick. Yeah, and what's interesting is that um he was a graduate student, and what he was in. Do you remember his concentration? Um, politics. It was something political, because like that's also another theme that ties back to Bung Ju Ho. He he talks about when he went to university. Yeah, he's like, oh, yes. we spent. We would go protest. We would go to lecture. We'd have lunch. We'd go protest again, and then go to bed. And he was this. There is, and I think that's also why he doesn't look at things as black and white. Like, there's no exact right or wrong. He's looking at it as there's this fight, there's this need for conflict and fight in the in his Korean identity to make a statement about something. But they, it's not always a clear cut answer of what that thing is. And I think that makes itself very clear in this movie. Like the graduate student, like he is a very he he's he studied politics. He's an activist, but also what's his goal? He doesn't have one until the monster you know right and i think that nam il's character is actually very important for portraying that perspective that a lot of people have grown up having we're we're told all our lives to go to college and Mm -hmm. then this guy he goes to college he's very smart and then everything falls apart nothing it doesn't open any new doors for him and he feels betrayed by the government in some way because he was told all his life to go do this thing um, and it's not until he has Molotov cocktails in his hand that, um, you know, an, an image that is so closely related to protesting that it becomes clear, like, what his goal is now. He now has that goal that you're talking about. 
Exactly. It's God, this movie's so fucking good. <laughs> it's to kill the monster. <laughs> it's such a good movie. And what's brilliant, too, is that we see the monster very early on, and it mm-hmm. makes such an impression that it saves a lot of... It's a very efficient use of the monster because we don't have to see the monster for the rest of the movie to know its presence. We know it's there, and we do see it. It's it's hunkering down. It's like kidnapping people, and we realize that Hansu's still alive, and she's trying to figure her way out around being trapped in this, like, sewer with oh the young... God with a young boy as the monster this just this monster just keeps grabbing up other people and bringing them back to this sewer pit it's horrifying and obviously um the little boy is like the only other person who has survived for whatever reason he has you know the other people who get sucked up are clearly very dead yeah and also just like how horrifying it is for two children in that situation to be alive with no adults and for her to sort of take on the role as the elder child to kind of be the adult and I love that scene when you know she asks him like what do you like to eat and they just start talking about food and you forget for a second that they're in this horrible situation because they're just kids and they're dreaming about all the food that they want to eat oh yeah Oh my god, it's such a good movie. Also, how terrifying was that scene where she creates this, like, she creates this lasso out of clothing to, and then it gets stuck on the gate and the monster's, <gasps> as, and the monster's asleep. And she's trying, like, it is terrifying. This, this, this very close shot of just her expression as, like, everything happens and this monster's just, like, asleep and not moving. And even her response after that she doesn't break down or think like oh my god it's over she's just like you've been you've you've done piggyback before right she's already still thinking about her next move mm-hmm. she's an amazing character i loved her oh, yeah. i loved her she was so good um the actress who plays her is amazing i i really like that they didn't play on sort of like the childlike idealization that we have for grown-ups or the I'm very precocious like look at me being too smart for a child she's just it's very nuanced and it's not you know it's not as obvious like in in Les Mis my mom always hates Gavroche the kid because they feel like they play it on too hard or too heavily that he's precocious so oh yeah um I, I like that she's just she's just thinking she it's also not too much. Yeah. She's also in Snowpiercer. She plays. Oh, she really? Mm-hmm. She again. Uh, yeah, she plays a pivotal character, and she's also, she's also again Song Kang Ho's daughter in that movie. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I I don't think I can watch the rest of that movie. I know what happens in it's the end. It's very violent. At the end, I'm just like, oh no, that sounds horrible. <laughs> Yeah, Snowpiercer, great movie. Has a lot more body horror than The Host. I think, I mean, well, I'll ask the question at the end, but yeah, we can continue talking about the movie. I like that we have covered a lot, but not enough for people to not watch the movie. It's just, it's so good. I love the siblings. I think I want to talk a little bit more about, like, the sibling dynamic a little bit. Yes, please do, please do. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so what I noticed about all three of them 
you've got our protagonist, um, Gang Du, and Nam Ju, the archer, and the graduate who is unemployed, Nam Il. And all three of them have something to offer, right? Our protagonist is the one with all the heart. He clearly has no means of procuring his child, and but he that doesn't stop him at all. He will go to the ends of the earth to get her back. And Namju has that precision and execution of an archer. She doesn't speak up as much. She's a little bit more quiet, but when she does, it's very clear and concise what she wants to say. And then Nam-il is the one who is actively trying to make moves to make things happen and finding information out. Like the scene where he um, gets to the cell phone tower and they try to stop him from getting away. Oh, yeah. he, He tricks them with his his wits. I'm like, oh, my God, this is such a good scene. It's so simple and so effective. Yeah, I think that was also a moment that's critical of certain aspects of the culture. Because, like, he gets in touch with, like, a co-worker or a friend. It's a fellow graduates kid. Because mm-hmm. it was another student who went to... He literally, I think because he was talking to me, he goes, we, you know, we studied the same academia together. But he ends up working at a massive telecommunications firm. Kind of doing right. the kind of opposite of what they were doing in, you know, university. But he's like, all right, I'll help you get literally he's he's having he has to do this whole workaround to do a thing that honestly the authorities could have done immediately, like Two just seconds. trace where the call came from. Right. And instead, they just look at our protagonist like, oh, he's so overridden with gr- grief. He's going crazy. It's the virus. It must be making him have these hallucinations. And it's like, no, just go check. Yeah. Just go do a government thing and check. So as he is trying to get this, you know, pinpoint the location of the phone call, it turns out that his friend is is in on the bounty reward with a bunch of people. And they're like, we're going to just get him. Yeah. They they sell him out. Even even after hearing the story, even after knowing that there that there's a young girl very clearly alive, like you have to believe him to an extent to be able to take him to the telecommunication center. But that doesn't, they don't care. They're going to trade them in for the bounty. I was going to say, it wouldn't surprise me at all if some of the people and corporations that they, that we know now would do that. Yeah. That totally seems like something a bunch of people who work at a corporation would do together. Like, let's go in on this bounty pool together, you guys. Yeah, it's like, um... I forgot what it was called. Never mind. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a very effective moment, and he gets the information. But then he, he I think he hurts himself, right? Because he tries to flee. Yes. And he jumps off the bridge. And uh. even that shot, I love that shot. It's so effective because it doesn't show the distance from which he falls, but clearly he's in pain. And they show the cop on the bridge looking for him. And you see down below on the ground that he's hurting. And you're like, no, get away, get away. And then he just rolls into the shadow of the bridge just in time. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's so good. Oh, my God. And it's just this, it's insane watching because it was entertaining the whole time. And it wasn't frustrating in a bad way. It was just moments where I'm like, these amazing characters, despite their flaws and their, you know, their setbacks, are able to overcome and do all these things that, in all honesty, if just every other piece of the system was working correctly, would have been done 
like literally the day of. Right. It shouldn't be up to these everyday people who are flawed and are inept in certain qualities to try to somehow take on this huge thing and have to suffer for it. Exactly. This quite literally a giant river monster. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember like reading the synopsis before watching the other host and seeing pictures because I was like, well, now I need to know what the monster looks like. And I remember seeing the pictures and reading the synopsis and being like, oh, this isn't that. First of all, the monster's not even that big. It doesn't look that big. And like reading the synopsis and I'm like, okay, fine. But the thing about, you know, checking internet sources instead of actually sitting down and watching the movie is you miss all of those nuances. You miss all of this character development that happens when you actually sit down and watch the movie. Oh, yeah. And I, I do love when... um the brother like potentially sacrifices his own life to save his niece because at the beginning of the movie when we meet him he seems just so pretentious and sort of just like ugh, whatever my family's crazy like this is stupid i'm better than this and i don't need to be a part of it and then to suddenly like throughout the movie having this like active need to find his niece and when he actually puts his smarts to it accomplishes so much that is necessary for the plot. Oh yeah, it's brilliant, and it's just uh, so good. So we haven't gr- we haven't talked about the dad much, like the dad dad. Oh man, yes. he's like he's the nicest one of all, and he's the one that tries to keep it all together. And I remember like my big his big moment, like the whole movie. He has this amazing monologue. Oh yeah, and I've ever. Yeah. <laughs> His hilarious monologue when he's trying to explain why his son is so stupid. Yeah. He didn't have enough protein at his development years, so that's why he sleeps all the time. Well, and also, too, with the way he um, says that his son, because he didn't have enough food, would sneak into these farms and get beat up by farmers. It kind of makes you wonder if there's some brain trauma there. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. But he he goes on to explain, like, listen, like, they're sitting there and criticizing their brother for making the mistake of grabbing a different child. Like, how could you be so stupid? And he is like, you don't know the pain of losing a child. You don't, do either of you know what that feels like? No. So I don't want to hear any more of you criticizing him because he's going through something that neither of you have any any understanding on and it's just such a heartfelt moment it really just stops you in your tracks and he has this way of like gathering your attention when he speaks and then suddenly gangdu sits up and is like it's looking at us and i'm just like oh my god it's looking oh at them god, yeah <laughs> and then that leads to this amazing scene where the father feels guilt-ridden that he you know he sees his children and they each have their flaws and he feels responsible he goes oh well it's this is my fault and we know it's not but in the order like this like again this passionate emotional sense drive to overcome he sacrifices himself to try and make up for what he would consider his flaws as a father and even before that too when they um, finally like escape the medical facility that they're being quarantined in he spends an exorbitant amount of money to get them what they need to escape. Oh, and everything. His everything credit cards. He does. 
everything he does is just he sacrifices everything to just try to give his children what they need these his, these grown-up children who don't get along with each other <laughs> no but how hilarious was that a hospital escape scene oh yeah <laughs> that was good that was incredible how do you forget your sister i know that was so funny and they're like what do you mean oh, she's always been so slow and then that's when like the comedic music time times in yep. and it's so funny with the horns oh. i love when like they're very clearly being chased by hospital officials and there's just moments where she's not even running she's walking she's in between walking. cars she's walking and she's pointing like oh you want me over there right, i'll go over there <laughs> yeah. And it's like they're trying to escape. <laughs> and then the brother the... is like, God, she's always been so slow. And I love that brilliant moment where the same asshole cop from before, the one who didn't give a shit when he was saying my daughter is there, he grabs onto the door and, and he just gets to slam the door on his face and he chases them up a ramp. It's so stupid. I love that. Yeah, when like he sees the van before um, their sister gets in. And the cop is like, hey, slow down. And he's like, yeah, 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 sure. And then they just, like, immediately speed off. It's yep. such a funny scene. It's just so perfectly timed. It reminded me of Little Miss Sunshine a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, this, like, family dynamic of, like, we just, we're, we're a bunch of flawed people, but we love each other, and we, we just want to try to finish this thing. Oh, my God, yes, yes. But then it's clear, like, after the dad passes away, which is... Oh my god. Oh. It's so good. Um, it, it's very clear that like the flaws of all of the siblings, they suddenly realize that they have to overcome them. And then they start, you know, using their their like good qualities to their advantage. Oh yeah, because like, you know, the 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 archer, she is brilliant but she always misses like she always messes under that last bit of pressure the the, the she takes brother, too long mm -hmm. the brother is a brilliant but he's an alcoholic and never sure of himself he doesn't have a goal and then you know gung do his you know his just hesitancy his fear and because we see it like you mentioned earlier like when the first monster first attacks he's like i don't want to fight the monster yeah yeah and then even when he sees his daughter get taken he there's like this moment of of frozenness like he freezes yeah. in the moment and then the same thing happens too when he watches his dad get killed yeah and then it but it does culminate into this ending where these flawed and drawn back characters have to overcome it. There's that brilliant, cause I love the, the end end, which, what, which I'm not even, I don't want to spoil too much, but like there's this whole plot device where the, they plan to use agent yellow, which is an or reference to agent orange, which right. was not only used in Vietnam, but used in Korea. It's a, um, hang on. It, I forgot exactly what it is. Hey, Google. What is Agent Orange? Is According to Wikipedia, Agent Orange is a herbicide and defoliant chemical, one of the rainbow herbicides. Yeah, what Google said. <laughs> and it causes, um, like, it, like, permanently scarred these parts of Asia. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, that's the solution to this mon- Not even the monster, the virus. They keep talking about the virus. It's like, wouldn't this be effective to the monster? Why? What are we doing? Right. And 
the fact that they did so appropriately call it um, Agent Yellow is just, it, it really puts the, the frost, it puts the cherry on top because it's very clear that, like, obviously this is created by Bong Joon-ho, but he is eliciting the idea of the yellow fear, you know? Yeah. That Americans are putting all of the fear into what the Koreans are doing. They're putting it on the Koreans' shoulders to deal with this, and then they have a chemical call come in that's called Agent Yellow. Oh, yeah. It's just so perfectly put together, like a beautiful orchestra. That's right. Sociocultural dynamics. <laughs> One of my favorite moments is... I'm going to jump a little bit ahead, but it, we're, we can get to the the last shot of the film. Gang Du is working at his shop again. And he has, the, oh, yeah. he has the little boy that his daughter had rescued. And unfortunately, she does succumb to the monster. But um, they're eating in the little shack. And there's the news report on the television. And it's the reporting on how the Senate is you know has a conclusion on handling the virus in korea and there's this brilliant moment of just like it's tragic in that the the perceived notion of what happened is not at all the truth but also this complacency they're just like you know what there's nothing good on tv like that's what the little boy actually says like, there's nothing good on tv right and even like his response is so perfect because he's like why don't we just eat and focus on eating together because to him like being homeless this is something that matters so much to him he'd rather just savor this moment that's so important to him yeah and that's just how quickly we tend to brush off the news when they are delivering important information like here they're saying it's it's the it's america's fault we did this there was no virus and they're just like eh, well it's already happened yeah like but it's so good. Yeah, this movie. Uh, yeah. So much to this movie. I don't. I think. How do you feel? I just. It's so good. There were times where I was laughing. There were times where I wanted to cry. I just feel like we're not going to honor a monster movie in American culture the way that this movie was honored and deserved being honored. That's right. Now, what's I, I think we should talk about the monster itself. Like, let's talk yes. about the actual monster. As far as monsters go, obviously this one wouldn't be able to take any of the other ones, I don't think. Maybe Mothra. I always go back to it. Or, like, the insect ones. I feel like the insect ones it could maybe take because it would just, like, chomp at it frequently enough. Yeah, this monster, in terms of, like, monsters, is one of the smaller, not as like dangerous monsters but it's it's one of the grossest monsters also it becomes really clear that it could still bludgeon you to death because it's coming at you at this like rhino-like speed i think according no, it's, to the it's pretty intense according to the wiki mm -hmm. it's called the goose gomol the gumol i can't even okay. say it correctly but it is it's just it's just nasty looking. It's yeah, got like it is nasty looking. 
It's got like fin, like arms that are fins, and it's like major. Yes. It's like front, like its hind legs have like other hands. It's just. I know. I was gonna say like the little legs that are in the back. I didn't even like have a chance to fully look at it because I was just so so grossed out by the parts I could see. Yeah, it's like a giant gross tadpole. I was looking for the Montauk monster because I was trying to figure out it when it came. It does look like the Montauk out. monster. Right? Yeah. Right? But it, it turns out the Montauk monster showed up two years later on the shores of Montauk than when this movie came out. That's right. The Mon- Did we, we talked about the Montauk monster before. Did we? I forgot. Didn't they, didn't they say it was like a raccoon? I don't know. I don't believe it's a raccoon. No. I don't know. I like the theory that it um, has something to do with the <laughs> institute that was on Montauk. Oh, yeah. You know what's sad? I'm, I'm sad that certain people have ruined the idea of conspiracy theories. Yeah, because there used to be, f- like, conspiracy theories could they be fun. They used to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. They used to be great. <laughs> yeah. You could there was a there was a moment in time where you could enjoy conspiracy theory and it not turn into anti-Semitism right away. Right, <laughs> right. There was a time where conspiracy theories were just kind of like, okay, that's a kooky story, all right. Not you know, violence. Oh my god. And I think so. it's time to because the thing is, you should there is a healthy skepticism to be had in our world. You gotta balance skepticism with reality. And what was fun about old conspiracy theories, like when you think about the UFOs, you think about right. cryptids, like these are just fun ideas of what if. And you look at these puzzles in, in our exactly. reality that don't make sense and you try to find an answer. Now it's now. Every, That's why I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I was saying, and unfortunately, now just every conspiracy theory is just some disgusting like gateway into a much further alt-right ideology and usually involves a lot of anti- exactly a lot of anti-semitism uh i i'm gonna sh- i'm gonna call shots right now i'm gonna throw some shade you, any Do it. the moment anyone subscribes to flat earth it takes like literally a paragraph of reading into anything flat earth to realize that it's based entirely in anti-semitism Right. That's my problem is that the reason that I say, like, I don't think that the Montauk monster is a raccoon is because I want to indulge that fantasy element of the things we don't understand. Yeah. And to like the Bermuda Triangle and ghosts. Yeah. I want to enjoy that. I, I will. But then you say flat earth and that's something completely different. <laughs> I will. I will add to because we were talking about the Montauk monster and conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have you heard of Camp Hero? Yes. Yeah. That's well that's the military it's an abandoned military base out in Montauk, Long Island. That's the one that inspired Stranger Things. That's why I want to enjoy the concept of the Montauk monster being something else. Yeah. Yeah. But then when you start just disregarding science, that's not a conspiracy. That's just not listening to facts. Oh, yeah. Old conspiracies are just like indulging in what we still don't understand. We understand the earth is round. Yes. We don't yeah. need to go over that. We know it's round. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> but so the thing about the Montauk monster is just it's so fucking ugly 
And that's how I feel about the monster and the host, where you're like, oh, this thing looks like it's a mutation. Yeah, that like monsters have like there's obviously a nastiness to being a monster. Like you're supposed to be this giant, intimidating looking figure. But um Oh my god, but that the the host monster is just gross in every it's regard. It's just nasty. Yeah. And it, oof, like the only I would consider one of the uglier, like ugliest monsters. I think um, Shin Godzilla, the god, the Japanese Godzilla movie, came out in two thousand seventeen. I want to say. It's, let me see. Yeah, two thousand sixteen. Have you ever have you seen what that Godzilla looks like? You know, I honestly haven't watched that one. And I don't know why I haven't. I own it on Blu-ray, but I won't. I haven't actually. I don't know why I haven't sat down and watched it. It's apparently very good. It's the same director as Evangelion. And it's apparently a return to form where Godzilla is this natural disaster and a reflection on our contemporary culture and anxieties. But uh, I do love Evangelion. But uh, that Godzilla is nasty looking. He's gross. Oh, he's a giant, <laughs> a giant gross monster. Oh, you know what it is? It's like the exposed bone aspects of it. Yeah. <laughs> also, um, I won't say much. I won't say much. But look at type in Shin Godzilla tail. It, that's really disturbing to look at. I see a bit of it and I don't like it. It is gross. It's got like some color on it. It's got some grossy bits. And I can maybe even see the- Ew! Yeah. <laughs> Ew! Ugh. Good job to whoever did like the monster design for this movie because it elicits something. Yeah, when monsters are ugly. Yeah, they're ugly as fuck. Because <laughs> I don't, like, as um, as weird looking and as effective as the Cloverfield monster looks, I wouldn't say he's gross. I don't think he's gross either. Um, the paras- he's a little stringy. The parasites that come off of it are gross. Yeah, yeah. But not the monster itself. He's just kind of a big but, sea monster. Right. Also, like, I expect gigantic um mutated sea lice to look that disgusting oh yeah i'm like yes this makes sense for something called sea lice um oh that tail though yeah that tail the godzilla 2016 is ugly okay i i need like a just the um animation studios rendition of the host monster just so i can take a look at it yeah it's just got like it really captures the mistakes of mutation and evolution and that there are just limbs and fins that make no sense whatsoever which feels like the most accurate part about it oh yeah there there are just pieces hanging off of it that are gross and wet i'm trying to think of other notorious gross movie monsters i think they're all fairly not gross um maybe the ants and them if you're if you don't like insects i don't like ants oh you know what's a gross monster what the tremors they're gross oh they're funny i don't know maybe i watched all of the tremor movies in one weekend with joe and as the movies continue they just get sillier and sillier 
Yeah, I wouldn't say they're the grossest. Like, I don't think they're, but I think they're on the same level of gross. When they start having feet, I'm like, <laughs> they look silly. Speaking of giant monster movies, have you ever heard, did we talk about the giant claw? No, we haven't talked about it. Oh my god. Okay. All right. Don't look it up. Don't look it up. Don't look it up. Don't look it up. Please. I will send you something because it, the giant claw is a 50s monster movie that plays that. itself very seriously. But then you see the monster and it's it's amazing. Oh my god, the head looks like Kevin from Up. <laughs> Look at the claw. <laughs> it just looks like Kevin. Oh my god, the eyes. <laughs> the giant claw. Oh my god, this thing is amazing. <laughs> it's a real movie. Oh my god, I love this. The end and it just has the claw. And it's got those big nails. The giant claw is a big dumb this... bird. <laughs> it's a big dumb bird. Big dumb bird. <laughs> it's just like a big vulture. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. The face. The face is something else. It's almost like googly eyes. Yeah, it's got googly eyes. <laughs> <laughs> the whole movie is free on YouTube. <laughs> Oh, boy. We should do a watch party for the Giant Claw. Oh, there's a movie that I, I found on Amazon after watching The Host um, that's only an hour long. I wanted to know if you've heard of this. What is it? It's called Llamageddon. No. What is Llamageddon? A killer llama from outer space crash lands on Earth and brings death and destruction to everyone in its path. That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh my god. <laughs> it's so amazing. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. So, I think we... This has... Yeah, this has once again just sort of divulged into um, our love of ridiculous monsters. Yes. I think we've covered... I think we did a good cover of the movie... I'm I'm yeah. I'm comfortable wrapping it, but if you want to talk about anything else, I think I'm good. Uh, I, I, we covered a lot of the stuff that we were thinking about when we were watching the movie. Um, I'm glad that we did get into Godzilla and other classic monster movies because that is actually like why Bong Joon Ho wanted to make this movie. Everything that happened in 2000, um, like the events of the American government dumping so much chemical waste into Korean territory is like what sparked his idea for this movie. He was like, that sounds like a classic monster movie yeah. idea. Um, and just the, I, I just think it's done really well. Oh yeah. yeah. And just the, the complex history, because there is this sentiment of anti, there's this anti-American sentiment as much as there is an embrace of an American like culture. Like there's, like we see it in modern Korean pop, like pop music. Like the Oh hell yeah. Like there's both this like there's just this complicated relationship where it's like we like the Americans here because it's a safety against North Korea, but then it's also like, but there's also this exploitation and oppressive nature of having another occupancy. And there's just this complete this 
again, like this complicated relationship between the, the U.S. and Korea. Yeah, it's like how, you know, in the same way that like if anybody were to come to you and show you something that you are interested in, it's just not possible to fully grasp everything the exact same way. So, and naturally just as people develop, they're going to take the things that they remembered about it and change it a little bit. So, whereas I feel like we, you know, I feel like American culture is really like the forefront of pop music. Um, what Korean pop music has done is kind of taken it and ran with it in such a way that we really haven't. I mean, I think that their their shows are amazing. Their music is amazing. I love K-pop. I think like what a great spectacle. But also you have people who go into these K-pop training schools like you would like Olympic gymnasts and they spend their whole lives building up to this thing like they're athletes. Mm -hmm. So then if somebody were to not get chosen or they get rejected by a K-pop group, that's their entire life, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I don't even feel like this movie is just an anti-American statement. I, no. I feel like it really... Um, it really discusses the complexities yeah because even of our influence yeah bon joon ho i remember talked about the misconceived notion that it's an anti-american movie he says a satire mm -hmm. of already existing conflicts like it's and you find that with all of his movies like again like right the 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 rich family and parasite aren't objectively the bad guys they just have this ignorance of the life that the lower classes live but even the lower classes like there's a struggle of Korean identity. Like, did you, you saw Parasite? I haven't watched it yet. I feel like I need a whole day to just. It's a beautiful movie and I love it, but there's. Live in it. Someone explained yeah. to me, there's even this moment where they, the wealthier family asks for a specific dish to be cooked. And mm -hmm. the dish is like a Japanese dish. And it's this culture. It's this part of this Korean struggle of identity of like, well, okay, what's, you know, what is Korean and what is better than Korean? And it's like a very, it's a, it's not something I could speak onto not being Korean, but it's something that I think any people can relate to with their own cultural identity, especially in America, where most people are like, what is American? There's no, like, the, I guess the closest you can say is like, the there's the Anglo-American and everybody else mm -hmm. kind of falls in line with that. And it's like, if you have any bit of like an immigrant struggle, or if you're a minority group, or if you're a person of color, there's this conflict of what, you know, what is your cultural identity? And that is something that's painted in all, like all of his movies. Right. And I think, I'm glad you brought that up because I've been thinking a lot about like, what does it mean to be an ally? And we tend to associate being an ally with the understanding of the other person. And that's not necessarily, and I'm learning this um, in a big way, like with what's happened recently, it's not necessarily about understanding the other person because naturally like we are going to misstep and mistake certain information and we're just not ever going to truly get it in the way that it means to live in it. So what we need to be doing as an ally and understanding our influence on different cultures is that we need to actually like take a step back and look at like, what does whiteness do internally? 
Mm-hmm. And what does that American influence, what does that Anglo-Saxon influence do to others? Not necessarily like, what do we need to understand about the other person? It's more like, what do we need to understand about ourselves and what we're doing to those other people? Or even what has it done to us? What has, exactly how have our identities been shaped? Because we're, it's like, the one I'm not excusing this because I hate the argument when like Italian Americans or Irish Americans go, Oh, well we had it rough. And it's like, yeah, but you've got to evaluate how has it shaped your discourse, your identity now to be empathetic to what that means for other people. What does that mean? Right. And also what does that mean for you? You don't have to be bound by these cultural senses of identity. That's if, especially like, and that's where the struggle comes in. Like, when you're queer, but you're growing up in a predominantly, you know, Latin American or Catholic household, like you, you know, there's already that struggle. And now that onto the struggle of being, you know, trying to assimilate to Anglo America. Right. And I think also, um, you know, when you look at like Italian American or Irish American families, and they say like, well, what about like what our people have struggled? And it's like, okay, so now take that iota of prejudice and you know exponentially times it by laws and um you know government officials like you know they say like oh what about us but it's like okay so you acknowledge that this thing happened to you now imagine it even worse for these other people or, who are expressing or, or happening or happening now yeah. like that's the exactly. big that's the big yeah. key difference like Right, exactly. Like Italian Americans and Irish Americans have gotten past the portion of prejudice that they've experienced. The problem is, is that it, it's still existing for other communities now. Yeah. More so, you know, it's it's more embedded in the experience. We so many things can come out of just this one movie. I fucking love this movie. I'm glad we watched yeah. it. Yeah, it it also just it was really needed after the long torrential downpour of stephanie meyer's movies i think what really killed it for me was the host her host not this host yeah 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 there's so much we could talk about with twilight but like once we hit the host i'm like i am i'm tired right and i honestly i picked that because i was like okay i want to actually understand what people are talking about because i'm i'm missing something nothing is grass yeah. like nothing is sticking to me about this movie and the thing is that is just the experience of the movie yeah. that's and, it there's nothing else to hold on to. and don't worry i'm glad you picked it it makes for a good conversation piece i'm like man i'm glad to be talking about smart movies right some of our funniest podcast episodes are when we are audibly like tortured by what we're watching that's how it is yeah oh my god but i really enjoyed this one um it it felt good to watch like a smart nuanced movie um protect bon joon ho at all costs oh yeah brilliant film director love his features fun random fact i don't know why this came up on my research it is uh i think it's like Quentin Tarantino's one of his favorite movies. I think it was it should his, be. It was his favorite movie that year, and I think it's in his top like ten list. It's a great movie. That's right. Um, all right. Well, also you haven't watched Train to Busan yet. I have right? not. No. You should watch Train to Busan. I will. I promise. Okay. 
I think after watching this movie, it comes 10 years later. Um, it's, it's like a good follow up. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, now we talk about weekly obsessions. Am I correct? Um, yeah, I would say like, do you think that this movie? Oh yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Do you think that this movie will be as successful now as if it came out then? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Bong Joon Ho's record shows that like he won Best Picture, he won Hell Best yeah. Picture. Uh, this movie is still highly regarded in the fact. Like I said, I saw it the scene with the monster attack as a meme, like not a meme, but like as a, it was posted and it went viral. I think mm-hmm, this movie mm-hmm. might even, I don't know if it necessarily do better, but I think it would do about the same, if not more. Like if this movie was. Like, there's advantages that Parasite has being a several, de- you know, it's a, he's a veteran filmmaker by this point, so there's more polish to it. But I mm-hmm. think this monster movie, it might do, it's hard. I'm just saying it would definitely still do well today. I think that it helps for international audiences that now Americans all know who this filmmaker is. And what's interesting... So I think that it would help there. Yeah. I was going to say, what I, I want to... I'm actually going to compliment the American people. I'm going to say yeah. that for the longest time, whereas studios and Hollywood executives didn't have faith in the American movie-going audience to watch a foreign film, the American film audience is proving them sort of wrong. Like, not 100%. Like, they're still... I hate when people, because there's still people who say this, who are like, I won't watch a movie with subtitles. I'm like, great, whatever. Just yeah. just cut off like most of the world's art then, then you don't have to bother. But I right. think more people than not are willing to watch foreign films. Like the fact that we have like a train to Busan, like the fact that the sequel put on Netflix was such a huge release for them shows that mm-hmm. for the, the long time fear that the, foreign film would not hit an American audience has been proven wrong. Like more people than not will watch it. Like there's like, even though they recut it and added, you know, American scenes to the original Godzilla, that movie was a hit. Like we have, we got to have more faith in our movie going audiences. Like people would enjoy these movies. They just don't get pushed as much. I know. And I think that, um, like I understand where it stems from. I do. It's because, like the American people want to see themselves in who they are, you know, sharing, like whose story they're sharing. They want to see themselves in that protagonist. But also there's so much that we can learn and invest in if the protagonist does not look like us. There's so much that we can learn. And I would say like even more so from that experience. And I'd say, you know, this movie, Bong Joon-ho's movies, um, I got into K-dramas after watching international television on Netflix. So I, I think that they have been really great about that. They have been really good about merging international television um, onto, like, this is what's available for streaming. Um, so I, I agree. I think that that's been really helpful. And also I think now as we develop as a society and we're realizing that those were choices that were made previously like we're starting to move away from that ideal and that's why we're starting to see that reflected movies where like when we're told emma stone is 25 percent asian in a movie and nobody wants to go see it yeah yeah but that was a what was a 
I can't. I still can't believe that. That was Aloha. That, that was still a fucking thing. What the fuck? I know. I know, right? Like, why even do that in the first place? And I heard recently that previous versions of the script for that movie were even more wild mm. than what they ended up going with. Apparently, previous drafts were even more insane. That's bad. Than what they ended up doing. That's yeah. insanity. But, um, yeah, no, I, I think it would do fine now. I think a lot of people could relate to it. They should re-release it. They should. Yeah. But, um, now we can get into obsessions. Yay, Courtney. Yeah. What has been your weekly obsession? A coffee shop in Harlem called Dear Mama. Mmm. Um, I love it so much. It's a, it's a coffee shop, cafe. They also have drinks in the afternoon. Um, I, I just, I've started going to them more frequently instead of the Starbucks that's there. And I've just really enjoyed their meals and their coffee. They have like a campfire latte that's nice. really good. And they have a muffin called Sir Muffington, which is like made from an Earl Grey batter with chocolate chips, some oats, some shredded carrot, and some orange spice jam in the middle of it. It's so good. And they also released an image of this like kanji inspired porridge that looks absolutely amazing and I'm probably going to get it tomorrow. Nice. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. just nice to go to like a local coffee shop. Hell yeah. Yeah. All That's right. been my obsession. Nice. I finished Dragon Ball Super this week. Nice. <laughs> I still have to watch Dragon. I still have to watch the the Broly movie. But, yeah. Um. Just that and the photography, and then uh, I found out this story today. Do you know the rapper? The Muffin Man. Oh. No. No. Do, do you know the 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 musician, the rapper Azila Banks? I do. Yeah, she practices. What'd she do? She practices magic. Of course she does. She's a huge uh, advocate for Pio Mayombe, which is a, it's like, it originates in the Congo, but has had roots in America, especially with more, like, Latin American-based communities. Um, I am not a professional or an expert on anything returning regarding magic or Pio Mayombe, but it goes deep into some, it does deep into a lot of things that are otherwise controversial. Um, and I think she yeah. got in trouble lately because she, her cat died. And I think she, um, she did something with its bones. I don't know what, it's something to do with magic. And I just find it fascinating. She's an interesting figure in music. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't blame her for being mad at Iggy Azalea for her career. That seems fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, I know she's had a very uh, complicated music biz uh, music career, but um, that does sound very interesting. Um, she did not. I will make the statement. She did not kill the cat. She loved her cat very much. So, 
Like, that would be a whole different story if she killed her cat and then boiled the bones. I'd be like, what are you doing? But the cat had already passed, and she had done something with the cat bones, and I'm like, you know what? She loved her cat. <laughs> Is it that you're you're obsessed with the um, potential potential witchcraft magic that she's participating in? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. I follow her on Instagram now, and I am I'm here for the ride. Okay. I'm I am willing to learn from the teacher. That's fair. I feel like I was obsessed with something recently that wasn't necessarily like me being obsessed with it in a positive way, but me sort of like wanting to just focus in on it more to understand it better. But I don't remember what that thing was. Was it magic? It's not magic. It's not magic. <laughs> I wish it was. Um, but I don't, I don't remember what it was now. So I guess it wasn't that important. That's our episode. Yay. Thank you guys for tuning in where we talk about the Good Host movie. It's, watch it. Watch it if you haven't. Watch all of Bonju Ho's movies. I know that Snowpiercer is still available on Netflix. Yes. And as far as I know, Hulu still has the host. I don't know where Parasite is right now, but Parasite is also great. Parasite's also on Hulu. Nice. All right. So, yeah, no yeah. excuses. Just go watch his movies. Yeah. Um, so good. Be sure to like, subscribe, follow on all the social platforms. That includes YouTube. Bam. Instagram. Bam. Spotify? Spotify. Well, bam. Google. Amazon. Zing. Zap. Podbeam. Place. Honestly, our SEO is so good. If you just type in Remember the Ots, we're the first ones that show up because we, Courtney thought of the brilliant name. And no, I think you did. Did No, I didn't. That was your idea. Don't, don't give me no, credit. No, you did. You did. Did I really? No, you did. Oh, yeah, that's you did. amazing. <laughs> if you type in Remember the Ots into Google, not only are the fir- we the first, but we take up the whole first page. Yay. Good. And we're on a streaming. I made up the image, but that's your title. That's amazing. The fact that like, because that's <laughs> that's a people pay lots of money to be the first page of a thing. I mean, it's specific. You have to type in "remember the odds," but it's nice to know if you type that into Google, we're the only ones that show up for the whole first page. Nice. Yay! Accidental SEO. We own the odds. We own it. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, we're, that's how this thing works, right? Yeah, we're on. <laughs> hold on, we're on another FM website I didn't even know about. Bam! It's called what is it? Backtracks FM. It sounds like you just said something like one of the Mars Attacks aliens. <laughs> we're on a, <laughs> we're on another podcast website. We're on. Ah, ah. <laughs> you know what's funny is, the weird thing about podcasting, and I'll say this from a business sense. Uh, well, not a business sense, just a creative sense. Um, I publish it and distribute it from Podbean, and it ends up on places I had no idea existed. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah, but I wonder least, how that works. At least people maybe get that's to why, like, signing with an actual production company, like, maybe that prevents those things from happening. I don't know. Oh my god! And they even have what? the hashtags. <laughs> oh boy! Because I, as far as I can tell, I didn't published this podcast here but it, you know what i'm just happy that it's got the this the availability everywhere find it listen to it follow us spotify on instagram 
Mm-hmm. YouTube. YouTube. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm just yelling words. No. <laughs> I feel like I've run out of um Batman onomatopoeias. So Exactly. Yeah, we're good. That's it. Enjoy. Watch the movie. Don't be don't 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 not do that. Stay safe, y'all. Have a good night. I've heard your daughter's still alive. Why didn't you contact the police or the military? A human rights organization, something.